Well, I want to invite you again to turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 down through chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, From the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And let us pray. Father, thank you for Holy Scripture. We thank you for this section of your Holy Revelation. I would pray uh, these moments again for the help of your Holy Spirit to bring forth your precious word, your holy word, in a way that is honoring to thee, that reflects its holy intention. And I I pray for each one here, Father, you'd be pleased to open their hearts and give them understanding. And I I pray time would not only redound to thy glory, but be good for our our souls and and helpful to our understanding and, and equip us to live for your glory in this world within which you have put us at this time. So may 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 it be honoring to thee, and may it be instructive to our hearts and to our minds. And we commit our time to you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever you're uh, reading a section of Scripture and trying to determine what the, the main theme is, one of the great helps is to look for a repetition of words, a word that occurs over and over again. And in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, especially chapter 4, The word repeated that helps us to ascertain the theme is the word rest. Uh, The verb form occurs four times in the New Testament, once in Acts 14, 18, but then three times in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4, verse 8, verse 10, and then nowhere else in the New Testament. Then the noun form occurs nine times in the Bible, uh, once in Acts 7, 49, then eight times in Hebrews 3 and 4, twice in chapter 3, six times in chapter 4. So there's a high concentration of the occurrence of this particular word in verses 1 through 13 or so of Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, you find the the section being titled, The Believer's Rest, because there's no one who enters the rest if there's not believing in the person of Christ, or or maybe a, a bit more narrowly entering God's rest. And that's especially prominent in the chapter. You notice in verse 1, Therefore let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest. And then verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those for and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Then verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works 
as God did from his then verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. Uh, the term rest, just as I was preparing, is kind of a pleasant word, I think, because if you're involved in some kind of hard labor, whether it's physical labor or mental labor for a sustained period of time, there's something pleasing about looking forward to a time of respect, a respite and rest. You can sort of recharge the batteries to some extent. Um, but, but the rest advanced in this section is much more glorious. It, it includes God's rest. Enter my rest. Now, historically speaking, I think as we have seen at least to some extent, the, the rest is equated with the, the promise of entering into or, and occupying the land of Canaan in the Old Testament. But the teaching of Hebrews makes it very clear the occupation of the land did not exhaust the significance of the, of the idea or the term. To, maybe I'm overquoting uh, Philip Hughes here. He writes, uh, God's rest extends far beyond the historical event of the entry of the Israelites into Canaan under Joshua's leadership. The possession of the land of Canaan was indeed a fulfillment of the promise, but only in a proximate, this worldly sense. The perspective of faith discerns its ultimate fulfillment is the entry into a heavenly country and a heavenly Jerusalem in an eternal consummation effected through the redemptive mediation of the incarnate Son. So the import of this section brings out that, that not everyone enters God's rest. Notice verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 5, again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And then again in verse 11, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So th this morning we want to focus on this particular term, and I want you to consider four factors that are, inform our thinking about this concept of God's rest. Four factors that will help our thinking, I hope, in, in, with respect to this particular concept. First of all, um, there, there must be the presence of faith to enter into it. There, there must be the presence or the exercise of saving faith to enter into God's rest. And here we're thinking, at least to some extent, of the words we looked at last week, for we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. So the author, uh, he, he's drawing attention to a conclusion about his readers that's true of himself as well. And the significance of the condition of soul here is brought out, I think, by three or four further considerations. This rest, number one, it's a present reality. Um, it's a current experience for all who have embraced Christ as Savior. I think the text makes that point. Uh, for we who have believed enter that rest. B.F. Westcott, an older helpful commentator, wrote the verb enter is, is not to be taken as a future, but the expression of a present fact. It's what a text like uh, Jeremiah 6.16 brings out. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the way is good and walk in it and you shall find rest for your souls. The, the term rest doesn't occur in Isaiah 26.3, but the same point is made, is made. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. So the result of this new standing, this new access is a, a rest. It's a peace of soul produced by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, under this heading, the, the term faith, um, the, the term faith or having believed is presented as an effectual reality. When I say effectual, I mean it, it accomplishes something, having exercised faith or trust in the person of Christ. 
Um, it, this is in the aorist tense in the Greece, Greek language, which means it points to a particular point in time in the past. And Westcott indicates that, moreover, the efficaciousness, or we might say the effectiveness of faith as regarded in its critical action. And he cites other examples where the verb is used in the same tense that show it's an effectual principle as faith becomes an effectual principle that it accomplishes things. Uh, it, for example, it will manifest itself in a, a, a true concern for the welfare of other Christian believers, the nature of, of faith that embraces Christ as Savior, which is a gift of God, uh, will manifest itself in a real interest in the well-being of other believers in Christ. Uh, the same verb is found in Acts 4 32, it says, in the congregation of those who believed, they believed, were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. So those who believed, the effect was there, there was a unity of heart, but there's also a, a, a deep expression of interest in well-being for other believers. The same kind of sentiments, I think, are found in Hebrews chapter 2, make that Philippians chapter 2. In verse 3, where Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Then he says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Um, but it, it especially relates to the effect of faith, especially relates to this concern for other Christian believers. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, but especially those who are of the household of faith. Well then, thirdly, this idea of having believed is a distinguishing mark of the true people of God. It's what sets Christians apart. They are those who have believed. It's, it's a badge of identification, so to speak. In 2 Thessalonians, for example, chapter 1 and verse 6 and following, after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, those will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. So what sets Christians apart is all who have believed. So they, they've mixed faith with the truth of the word. They have mingled faith with the saving word. They have, they have exercises a trust in Christ to save their souls. This is in really solemn contrast to verse 8 of this section. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, dealing out retribution to those who do not, do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this, this kind of faith is what sets them apart. Again, Westcott writes, at the same time, he does not say simply, we enter in having believed, but regards believers as a definite class who embrace the divine revelation who it was offered. So the, the kind of faith will, will evidence itself in, in continuing to submit to divine revelation. This is what distinguishes believers. They will regard it as the very word of God. You will recall 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Well then, fourthly, 
This is a glorious reality. Having believed and entering into this rest, it's a glorious reality because it's a rest that interacts with the holy being of God. Uh, Isaiah 11.10 says, Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. It's glorious because it, it brings sinful souls into communion with a God that is infinitely pure and glorious and holy. Uh, and this, this is an incomparable and a glorious privilege. I've been going through a Puritan theology with a brother. It's a, a great book, by the way, that we have in our library. And the chapter on adoption that we have recently been interacting with, there's a, they, they quote the Puritan William Perkins. And William Perkins said that a believer should esteem his adoption as God's child to be greater than being the child or heir of any prince, since the son of the greatest potentate may be the child of wrath. But the child of God by grace hath Christ Jesus to be his elder brother, with whom he is a fellow heir in heaven. He hath the Holy Spirit for his comforter, and the kingdom of heaven for his everlasting inheritance. And Perkins lamented how few people, they say, realize this experientially. He writes, at earthly preferments, men will stand amazed, but seldom will you find a man that is ravished with joy in this, that he is the child of God. So, so having believed in Christ, there's an entering into God's rest. This is an incomparably glorious reality because it means one has the kingdom of heaven for an everlasting inheritance. Well, then, fifthly, a fifth consideration under this first heading, this is a, closely related to this. It's a hopeful rest. It's because its purest and fullest expression will come to fruition in the world to come. So it's, it's a hopeful rest in that sense. Isaiah 32, 18, then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. So we see in the first place uh, the, the presence of faith. There must be faith to enter into this rest and to benefit from it. The corollary to that, and the negative corollary, you might say, in the second place, the absence of faith excludes from the benefits of this rest. The absence of faith excludes from the benefits of this rest. We who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, and the text go on, goes on, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is one of three times in chapters 3 and 4 where Psalm 95.11 is quoted. It's kind of a summarizing statement about God's response to the disobedience of the wilderness generation, those who provoked God, they continually provoke God by their unbelief. And you notice back up in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, therefore I was angry with this generation and said that they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And it's found again here in this text and also in verse 5. John Brown, Brown, older commentator, wrote as a corroboration of his statement that it is believers and believers only who enter God's rest. The apostle quotes a part of the 95th Psalm. To see the bearing of this quotation on the apostle's argument, it's only necessary to ask, and who were they who were thus awfully excluded from the rest of God, to whom swore he that they should not enter his rest? The answer, to them who believed not. The unbelievers are excluded. It is the believers alone who can enter. So these, bring, these words bring to our mind very emphatically, I think, number one, and this is, this is positive, there is such a thing as God's rest. It is a biblical reality. It's like paradise. There is such a place as paradise. There is such a place as heaven. The veracity of the statement is underscored by it's presented as God speaking, just as he said. 
William Hughes said the last part of the quotation from Psalm 95 is repeated here for the purpose of calling attention again to the fact that God has a rest. These words do remind the listeners, another author says, of God's testimony in Scripture, and a resting place truly exists. So it's the kind of statement that brings out not only is there life beyond this world, but it's invested with a kind of joy and glory because it comes from the very being of God. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Hughes writes, the futurity, excuse me, the futurity relates not to God's rest as such, but to the enjoyment of it by his creatures. We read along the same line in John chapter 14, the words of our Lord, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I go to prepare a place of joy and peace, and the reason, it's because the Lord is there. His being is there. His person is there. Also, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the, do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And the words which comfort one another is we shall always be with the Lord. It's being in the presence of the Lord that makes it a glorious place. Several months ago, it was on a, on a Monday, uh, Carolyn was in Lake Tahoe, so I, do, I drove up to the uh, Shelton area by a, a cabin that we used to go to when I was a kid. And, it, and it's a pretty moderate cabin, but it's kind of special to me because of the people that were there. You ever do that? You drive by certain places, and this is kind of a special place because of the people that were there. And that's the idea here. What makes the rest a glorious place is because God is there and Christ is there. In his book, The Saints' Treasury, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote, Surely Christ is an object sufficient for the satisfaction of the Father. Surely then Christ is an object sufficient for the satisfaction of any soul. Thomas Goodwin, writing about heaven, said, If I were to go to heaven and find that Christ was not there, I would leave immediately, for heaven without Christ would be a hell to me. So it's the presence of Christ that makes it an infinitely glorious place. However, the words here on the negative side, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, emphasize the certainty of future punishment um, for the unrepentant, for those who do not exercise faith. And this certainty and finality together with an awareness of the condition that awaits, I think, should produce a certain sobriety in our own souls. And 2 Thessalonians 1.8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his power. And this eternal eventuality can overcome a soul, and it often does, without warning. In 1 Thessalonians 5.3, well, they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and, and they shall not escape. It's the opposite of today that you shall be with me in paradise. It's today there is this descent into a place of eternal destruction. 
And the personal character of this language is God, God saying, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Uh, and especially in terms of its ultimate application to souls, it's a sobering reality to consider. So we notice here in the first place that the presence of, of faith results in entering this rest. The absence of faith excludes from entering this rest. Thirdly, there's an ongoing opportunity to enter this rest. There's an ongoing opportunity to enter this rest, I should probably say, for some. There's an ongoing prospect of trusting Christ and entering this rest. Notice verse 3 uh, continues with a, a reference to God's creation. Uh, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, this is a, a clear reference to initial creation. It helps us to understand more clearly this phrase, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It helps us to see that the rest has been available since creation. And then verse 4 adds, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So if you put these two together, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, and then, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. He completed his work of creation and rested from all the work that he had done. O'Brien writes, when we read in verse 4 that on the seventh day God rested from all his work, we're to understand he began his rest at that point. He began his rest then after creation. This condition of rest continues. The wilderness generation was excluded from God's rest. His rest has been there since he completed creation. The Genesis text is now used to show that this rest existed before as well as after the Exodus. Westcott brings out, it's been remarked that the six days are defined in the record of creation by the evening and the morning. But the seventh day, there's no such limitation like that that is given. So we, we can say that there is a perpetuity related to the concept of God's rest. The reality of his rest has existed since creation, and it, it goes on today. It continues today. Another quote, which is similar to the other one, Genesis 2, 2 is used to show that the place of rest existed before as well as after the, the exodus. So nothing has happened to indicate that this rest no longer exists. So the perpetuity and the ongoing character of the rest, it, it underscores the temporal character of the, the rest in the land of Canaan. Uh, one author says, even as Psalm 95 looked beyond the rest in Canaan to a future permanent place of rest within a salvation historical time frame, Psalm 95.11 and Genesis 2.2 are joined to prove that the rest cannot simply be identified with the land of Canaan. It was not final. Our author acknowledges that the Old Testament, rightly understood, announces the temporary character of the rest in Canaan and looks forward to a future final rest of God. So the added feature here is, is that these verses, they pinpoint when the rest began, right at the conclusion of creation. Uh, and it's existed since then, and it still exists before and after the wilderness generation. I can envision somebody that would come to this church, maybe from another church, and they looked at the, the building and the church that they came from, and they might think, well, this, this building has been around for 15 years or 20 years. And then you look at this building and you're thinking, it's been here a long time. It's been, and it will be here for a long time. It's been here for a long time. It's going to be here for a long time. And what the author is emphasizing here, the rest has existed for a long time and it continues to exist. Well, then fourthly, this means in the fourth, in the fourth place that the opportunity to enter this rest still exists. Um, the, the door's not closed, so to speak. 
And the reason a person can still enter this rest and be assured of a joyous welcome, it's not just because of the work of creation, but because the work of redemption has been complete. God has already done his part. He's already um, sent his son into the world. He sent his son into the world to die on the cross and pay the penalty for all the sins of all those who would repent and all those who would exercise faith in the person of Christ. However, uh, the benefits... Uh, this, uh, this only applies to those who recognize that they are sinners and rely completely upon the person of Christ as Savior. His redemptive work constitutes a perfect provision for repentant sinners. So, and, and then the effect, if one is here and you have not done so, the effect of entrusting your soul to Christ alone as Savior is that you enter into this gracious and eternal rest. So if you know you have resisted offers of coming to Christ, what you need to know is the offer is still open, but it won't last forever. It won't last forever because our lives are, are limited. They, they are short and they are uncertain, our, our times on earth. So my plea this morning would be as if, if you have not trusted Christ, don't be like those who say peace and safety, and then suddenly destruction comes without warning, but rather be like, there was one in the Bible who asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he did, and he was saved. And so if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and delivered from eternal wrath and enter into God's pure and glorious and eternal rest. And let us pray, shall we? Father, I just ask that you would take what we have considered this morning. We, we thank you for the provision that you have made for the eternal salvation of our souls that's rooted in not, not just creation, but your, the redemptive work of your son on the cross. And we thank you for the perfection of that work and that anyone who comes to thee and trusts him can be assured of their full and complete um, reception into thy presence. They're entering into a, a pure, peace-producing, glorious rest. And we thank you that you have made provision for our souls. We thank you that you have been pleased to seek us because we never would have sought thee. I pray that you would take these considerations and increase our own devotion to Christ, our love for Christ, our adoration of Christ, our, our thankfulness for what you have done for us and in us and what we know you will do for us in the future. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.